The country is still in lockdown and, like most of us, the nation's historians are lying low at home. As a result, my next guest has had more time to devote to his favourite pursuit, solving historical murders and uncovering the true circumstances behind the deaths of those who lost their lives during the Irish Revolution. Dr. Parigo O'Rourke is the author of the 2016 book Truce, Murder, Myth and the Last Days of the Irish War of Independence. And Parig joins me now. You're very welcome indeed to the programme, Parig. Welcome back, in fact. Um, now, you've talked to us before about your research, which aims to separate fact from fiction when it comes to how and why people on both sides of the conflict were killed, particularly in the days leading up to the truce in July of 1921. Have you been investigating this subject with renewed vigour over the last month or so? Well, I had a number of files that I had come across doing previous research on my PhD in the, the British archives, and they were things that I had left aside and said, that's interesting, I'll get back to it. And now, of course, like most historians with the shutdown, there aren't any lectures happening, there's no public talks or commemorations. So I have the time to kind of go back and look at these anew and using a lot of, I suppose, digital research online as well, you can get extra bits and pieces of information from the, the period newspapers. And the three, I think, that you've been researching are Edward Fox, Margaret Keogh and Francis Murphy. Tell us a bit about Edward Fox, first of all. He was a 21-year-old IRA volunteer who was killed mysteriously near his home in Dublin. So what were the circumstances surrounding his death? What have you discovered? Well, Fox was uh, 21 years old, as you said. He was, as well as being an IRA volunteer, he was actually a former British Army soldier and First World War veteran. And on the 19th of June, 1921, he'd been drinking in a pub just across the, the road from his home. It was Corbett's Pub, a hardcore place south dublin and he was walking to his home across the road 29 south cumberland street when he was murdered by an assailant who came up and shot him in the back now the british initially put out a report from dublin castle suggesting that the ira were responsible they emphasized the fact that fox was an ex-british soldier and they stated that he had been shot by quote armed civilians and that of course is british army parlance for the ira but as you mentioned in the introduction in fact fox was a member of the ira the British Army held an inquest into Fox's killing. Coroner's courts weren't operating at the, the time. And this inquest ruled that Fox had been willfully murdered by some person unknown. And they refused to allow the press to report on the inquest, which was quite unusual. I managed to find the inquest report in the British National Archives. And it's clear that the British knew exactly who Fox's murder was because three witnesses stated that Fox had been drinking with one companion just before he was killed. The bar owner, James Kennedy, said that this man had followed Fox into the street immediately before the shot was fired. Fox's brother-in-law, John Dillon, was in the pub. He was another ex-soldier, and he saw this man follow Fox outside immediately before he was shot and then run away immediately afterwards. And Fox's sister, Mary, of course, who lived just across the road, witnessed the killing and actually saw Fox's companion standing over the body with a revolver and all the people standing around saying that this man had just shot her brother. And it's only when you look at the, the British um, report, which was declassified in the 1970s, that the name of this man and his address, they've actually been redacted throughout. So the British knew who this man was, but decided to remove it from the report before it was released. But somebody who was declassifying it messed up because two classified documents were left in the report when it was released. 
The first was a letter from a British officer who said that, quote, X, which is what this mystery man, Fox's companion, was named as, X is one of our agents, codename GXVMCA. X reported this at Dublin Castle and was told to clear out as he had jeopardised his position as an agent. And this British officer's report stated that General Boyd, who was in charge of the British Army in Dublin, knew about the murder. And he also stated that General Neville McCready had ordered that this man's identity be, quote, locked away. And I also found in that case file a second envelope labelled secret on His Majesty's service. And in that was a slip of paper saying X equals Danny Whelan. And Fox had been murdered by his friend Daniel P. Whelan, who lived at 16 Lower Mount Street. And that piece of paper should never have been released because as recently as 2014, Barry Keane, a Cork historian, took the British Home Office to court trying to get them to release information about informers way back in the, the Fenian days. And the British had ruled that they would never release the name of any informer or agent from any period. So obviously this was a blunder that somebody left this in in the archives. But it's very significant because although we have many claims from all over Ireland that British forces were involved in, in murders or assassinations and, and got away with it. This is the first time that we have a paper trail saying that the very top people, the general in charge of the British Army in Dublin and the commander-in-chief of British forces in Ireland, Neville McCready, actually knew about this killing and allowed one of their agents to literally get away with murder. And do we know anything about Daniel Whelan? Do we know why he killed Edward Fox? We don't know why he was killed. It could have been a personal row between the two men. One of them may have known that the other was a, an informer. We, we simply don't know. What happened to Whelan afterwards is that he was picked up by the Irish Republican police, I think about two weeks after Fox's murder. And he was clearly unhinged either by the murder or had been unhinged before it. And the IRA, rather than executing this man who they had already suspected was a, a spy, they ended up getting him certified as insane by a medical doctor. And he was actually committed to a, a lunatic asylum. He was there for a number of years and was released in the late 1920s. What happened to him after that, we don't know. Now, you mentioned coroner's courts. Why were coroner's courts no longer in session at this stage and what had replaced them? The problem with coroner's courts was they, they weren't returning the verdicts that the British authorities in Ireland were happy with. From about, I think, mid-1920, they stopped having coroner's courts because if you take the case of Tomás McCurtain, the mayor of Cork, who was allegedly murdered by members of the Royal Irish Constabulary, I think they returned a verdict that the Lord Mayor had been murdered by British agents sent forward by Lloyd George, and Lloyd George and the British government were guilty of murder. Obviously, the British weren't happy with coroner's reports coming out like that. So in areas initially where martial law was proclaimed and then in other areas, they decided to simply stop holding these coroner's courts and to have the British Army hold inquests investigating or inquiries investigating all these. But of course, that's problematic when you have the British Army investigating killings allegedly carried out by the British Army and in this case carried out by a British Army intelligence agent. Talk to us then about Margaret Kyo. She was the only woman, the only, well, not the only woman killed in the War of Independence, but the only common Amman uh, member killed in the War of Independence. Certainly by no means a household name, but a very interesting case nonetheless. 
Yeah, there were about eight coming among women killed in the period in total. One of them, Josie McGowan, was killed in 1918, but that's officially before the War of Independence um, begins, and about six others were killed in the Civil War. But officially, Margaret Kyo would be the only coming among woman who was killed in the War of Independence. If there was one person who embodied the kind of Republican revolutionary movement at the time, it was Margaret Kyo. She was an Irish language speaker. She was a Gaelic League activist. She was a trade unionist. She was a member of Coming Amon. She was a suffragette. And she was involved in the uh, ladies' uh, GAA team locally as well, the ladies' camogie team. So at 21 years of age, she was definitely someone who was very committed to the, the revolution. I came across her first in 2016 when I was doing research for my book on the, the truce. She had been shot dead in her home on the evening of the 10th of July 1921, so just before the ceasefire began. Her home was at uh, Stella Gardens in Ringsend in Dublin. And reading the newspaper reports, it suggested that you know, a British murder gang had been involved, that she had been deliberately assassinated. There were all these talks in the newspaper about black and tan raids in the area at the time, and there was talk of a mysterious stranger had knocked at the door, and when Mar Margaret Kyo opened it, she was shot dead by this assailant. So I published this in 2016, and I was very surprised that the Republican movement, I suppose, over the years hadn't actually commemorated this woman, and particularly with the refocus on women's history and coming to man in 2016, that there hadn't been a bigger deal made of what would, you know, she would be considered a, a Republican martyr. But it's only after I published the story that members of the Kyo family actually got in contact with me in recent years and said, that's not actually what happened, that they knew this was the story put out in the newspaper at the time. But what had actually happened was that Margaret Kyo's death was accidental. There had been black and tan raids in the area on the night of the truce. Margaret Kyo and her family had been hiding arms in an IRA arms dump, and they went to move them, fearing a raid. One of the bullets fell into the fire and exploded, basically fatally wounding her. And she died two days later, so the 12th of July, 1921, and she was buried in, uh, in Glasnevin. And it's only in recent months or weeks that the family actually gave me permission to go forward and to publish what actually happened to her. So that explains why there had been no formal commemoration of her until recently. But I'm happy to say that the National Graves Association put up a new headstone for her in Glasnevin uh, Cemetery just before Christmas. That bears the original inscription, which was on her uh, headstone, which was Margaret Kyo died for Ireland. And there's also a local committee in Ringsend, uh, headed by Matthew Ward and Anthony O'Reardon, who was uh, a relative of Margaret Kyo. And their attitude is that they still want her to be commemorated when the centenary comes up, because even though the story of her dying by an assassin's bullet is obviously false, she's still the only member of Come and Amon that we're aware of who actually died on active service. And their attitude is that she still deserves very much to be honoured. And I think the press was refused admission to the military inquest into Margaret Kyo's death at the time. So that must have enhanced the notion or the claims that she had died as a result of being killed by a British murder gang. That would have enhanced the, the suspicion. And it's very unusual because her, I went through about 3,000 of these British Army inquest files over in, um, in Kew in the British National Archives in London. Many of them, by the way, are now available uh, online uh, if you're stuck at home in lockdown. And if you look at the colonial office, um, war office uh, files, you'll, you'll get lots of copies of these. But Margaret Kyo's inquest is missing from those files. And that initially raised my suspicions and made me think 
that it was a British assassination unit that had done it. But of course, once the family came forward and put the, the story straight, I was happy to uh, correct the error of my ways and misassumptions. Finally, Parry, tell us about Francis Murphy, who was a Fianna Aaron boy, young boy, who was killed. And his killing was blamed for a long time on British forces, on Crown forces. But apparently, or you have discovered that that was not actually the case. Yeah, this is a very unusual and, and slightly complex one. Uh, Murphy was a, a 15-year-old uh, Fianna Aaron Boy Scout, a member of Countess Markovic's Republican Scout movement. He lived in, in Glan, which is a rural area just outside of Ennistymon in, uh, in northwest Clare. He was from a, a pretty large family. His father, John Murphy, had been a, a former rural district councillor, and the family were known to be Republicans. Francis and his twin brother were both members of uh, Fianna, as I said, and Francis was shot dead. Um, he was sitting at home in his kitchen, reading by the fireside about midnight on the 14th of August, 1919, when a shot or a number of shots were fired through the window and one of these struck Francis and, uh, and killed him dead. Now, there were still coroner courts operating at this time because, again, this is about six months before the murder of McCurtain. And what happened is that the coroner's court locally ruled that this 15-year-old boy had been willfully murdered by British soldiers. And that was based on the evidence of one key witness, a local man called Patrick Canole. Now, Canole worked on the West Clare Railway, and he said that he'd been travelling to work after one o'clock in the morning that Francis Murphy was shot and that he met three men in British uniform and that one of them fired a shot at him and that they questioned him where he was going. This was taken as you know, evidence that the British Army were active in the area, firing wildly, and that they must have targeted the Murphy family because they were Republicans. The problem with this is, I discovered using help from other historians and some uh, research uh, newspapers online, in particular um, Owen Shanahan and people were very helpful to me, that Canole admitted committing perjury some time later. And in March of 1920, he was actually arrested and he was put into Wormwood Scrubs prison and given three months for conspiracy to murder. What had happened was Canole had agreed to give perjured evidence in return for assistance in killing his boss who was having a row with on the West Clare Railway. Needless to say, that plan fell apart. But what all this relates to is that the Murphy family were related through marriage to Michael Nyland. In 1913, this man Nyland had married into the McGann family and he had uh, basically gained through that marriage his new wife's farm. And there was a lot of bad blood about this in the area. There were horses uh, shot, there were cattle maimed, there was hay burned. There was basically a six-year campaign of intimidation against um, Murphy's relative, this man Michael Nylon. It got so bad that eventually by 1919, Michael Nylon had uh, round-the-clock RIC protection, and there were actually three different assassination attempts on his life. On one occasion, he was shot by would-be assassins as he was walking to Mass with an RIC escort. So in 1919, the Nylon family was still being boycotted, and Francis Murphy's father helped him on the farm. And it's for that reason that shots were fired uh, attacking the, uh, the Murphy home. Now, this was clearly meant as intimidation, but obviously killed Francis Murphy by accident. And again, this was a very unusual case in that you would think that the, the killing, uh, the murder, as it was ruled by a, a British court, that the murder of a 15-year-old boy 
by uh, British soldiers would be considered a cause celebre for Republican propaganda. But after a few weeks, Sinn Féin stopped using it as propaganda. There had been money raised and plans were put forward for a, a monument um, in honour of Francis Murphy, and again, that was dropped. And there was no popular commemoration of, of Francis Murphy. There was no GA club named after him, no Sinn Féin coming or Fianna Fáil coming, and there was no songs ever written about this young supposed Republican martyr. It basically became obvious to me when I read uh, the background of the, the newspapers and uh, read the whole agrarian background to this, that this was the reason why he hadn't been commemorated in that fashion. And when I did uh, publish it, I actually was contacted by some local people from the area and some distant relatives of the, the Murphy family who said to me that uh, they were quite happy that I had put forward what they claimed they always knew was the, the truth about the killing, that it wasn't political, it was agrarian. So I think all these cases, whether it's Francis Murphy, Edward Fox or Margaret Kyo, it just tells us that you have to do a lot of digging into the, the context of any of these killings and that things in the War of Independence aren't always uh, as they seem when you read them first in the, the press reports or in IRA veteran reports. Well, keep digging, Porik. Uh, great work reopening and investigating these uh, historical, as Bud, you'd call them, cold cases. And as you say, it goes to show when it comes to our history, there's a lot to discover and to reassess as the decade of centenaries rolls on. Uh, once again, Porik O'Rourke's book is called Truce, Murder, Myth and the Last Days of the Irish War of Independence. And that is published by Mercier Press. Porik, many thanks for joining us on the History Show this evening. Thank you, Miles. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Logan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.